Wow. I've been telling the folks back at Shawnee we need a choir. Don't you agree, Mrs. Price? Thank you very much. Now, that was a real blessing to me personally, and thank you for preparing that and um, giving such as unto the Lord. That is tremendous. Um, let's pray. Father, we, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have taken a great privilege. We've taken advantage of it, and we've invoked the great power of the name of the Savior that somehow, in some way, immediately ushers us into the presence of the great King. And now, before the throne room of heaven, we would whisper into the ear of our Heavenly Father, and we would ask you to do one more thing for us, O Father. One more matter before us, Abba, Father, and that's to take the Word of God this afternoon and so weave it into our hearts, our minds, our souls, so that we end this day, this weekend, looking more like Jesus Christ than when we began. Father, we heard about his heart this morning. We heard about his passion, his compassion. And we, all of us, were moved in a a manner, and we, we prayed, Oh, give us the heart of God. We ask you to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, it's been a real, real privilege to be with you. Uh, it's delightful. Our assembly, our family has been praying for this conference. The men that we uh, study with, we've been praying for this conference. And, uh, and we just want to say thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, on behalf of Chris also, I know he would express the same thing. I don't know where Chris is. Is he in the bathroom again? <laughs> I couldn't resist. Uh, it, Barb, you tell him I said that, okay. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, I know Chris would express the same, and Barb too. We, we thank you. And in particularly, we, particular, we thank you that um, you've invited Chris and I to be here together. That is a very uh, extraordinary privilege, a very high honor as far as I'm concerned, so thank you very much. For the elders here and all those who the assemblies represented, we just pray for you and, and the Lord to bless you. Now turn in your Bibles, please, to First uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll pick up the study where we left off. And um, you might have guessed that I'm, I'm not very good at covering lots of ground, at a time. Chris can do chapters at a time, but I can't. I do phrases at a time, and, uh, and I like to, to think about it as, as completely and fully as possible. So in that regard, we're working from two different, uh, what was the word, paradigms, which I also don't know what it means, but nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, it sounds intelligent, as our brother said. Um, let me read this passage. We'll have some introductory comments, and then we'll get on to our phrase of concern. Do not quench, oh sorry, verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it reads in verse 19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I've submitted to you that I I believe this is describing sort of an internal unity that began back in verse 16 and is expanded in verse 19. And and I think the Spirit of God 
uses the, um, the, the word grouping of do not quench the spirit as sort of the headwords for the rest of the things that follow. And I've listed them before you. Um, I don't know what I did with that pointer. But I've listed those before you here, and we talked about do not despise prophecies, uh, a careless attitude or approach to the Word of God. Uh, we, we looked at that, for example, from the life of Saul and how he treated the revelation of God that he should have sought before the, the primary battle. He should have done that. And yet many of us in this room have had many, uh, thank you, brother, different battles that we have faced, different obstacles that we've gone through, and we haven't sought the Lord through His Word. Now, I just want to tell you something. This is how I personally do it. Oops. How I personally do it. I actually, I actually like to get into my closet, literally a closet, and I close the door. Why? Because it said so, close the door. And then I, I get on my knees, and I have an open Bible, and I begin to read large quantities of God's Word. You know, books at a time. Book of Romans, a book, uh, several New Testament books, and I ask the Lord, Lord, what would you have done about this obstacle? Show me from your word. I'll read Psalms, 20, 30 Psalms at a time, or whatever, time, whatever amount I can afford at that particular day, and just be in his presence. And I ask the Lord, as I read, as the Lord is in my, uh, I in his presence, he in mine, the Spirit of God begins to, to show me things from his scriptures. It's not some sort of magical thing. It's not some sort of, uh, 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 like a... a uh, what do they call Some sort of movie thing. I'm in the scriptures. I've asked God to lead me. And if you ever wonder about that fact, you look out, you check out Romans chapter 15 and 16 and how Paul specifically used a scripture to give him direction. It's called a rhema. And I ask the Lord to do that. And I look and then I write it down. I keep a notebook, either it's electronic or paper notebook, and I write it down. I don't want to forget. I take that out of the Old Testament. Write these things down so that you would have a book of remembrance. That's what I do. Do not despise prophecies. Do not take it lightly, either as a speaker, a communicator, a Sunday school teacher. How many of you in this room, as a Sunday school teacher, failed to realize that the next day you were supposed to teach Sunday school and you spent the 30 minutes before the Sunday school class preparing? Anybody do that before? Oh, you're so honest. <laughs> I've done that too, right? And that, that, that's not what we're talking about. That's not the way we want to be. We want to take this seriously. We want to take it with great preparation, great exercise of soul. That's really what it's about, is exercising the soul beforehand. And so I, I encourage you in this particular way. How do we not quench the Spirit of God? Do not despise prophecies. And then we looked at this phrase, test all things. It means a, an evaluation that a metallurgist would do on a, on a piece of, of rock and looking at its component elements and all the processes that are required to heat it up and cool it down and heat it up and cool it down. And what that means for you and I is we have to look at things from multiple angles and we have to consider its ramifications and we have to, to think about it from its origins and where it come, came into being. And whether you re realized it or not, Christ actually did some of that when he cited some of the heresies that have been from the 3rd and 4th centuries. And he's looked at it from various angles. That's exactly what we're doing. We looked at, at, at testing all things personally, examining the heart. We looked at testing all things doctrinally, and we, and, and we had some examples of that. Some of, the, some of the big examples today, I think, that have been more prevalent would be testing all things as it, as it pertains to uh, 
uh, of course, things like Calvinism or, or things of the emerging church has been very popular in the last 10 or 15 years. Back before the emerging church, there was a thing called the Willow Creek Movement. And what that simply was, was we were becoming a seeker-friendly um, uh, atmosphere of church life. And what that did is it challenged all the philosophical teaching about the church in the New Testament. It said that we existed to be basically a, 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 come, a come in club as you are. We wouldn't dispute that as you are, uh, that as you are phrase, but what we were doing was we would put away our Bibles so it wouldn't offend anybody. I got news. The gospel offends. You don't have to try to offend, it offends on its own. And that's when we're going to be about the gospel. And the reason why it offends is because the natural man does not have a mind that will agree with God. It says the natural man has a mind that's at enmity with God. It's going to be offensive if you just breathe it. And that's the way it's going to be. And so we, we want to be very careful and look at those things. I, I, I personally uh, have those that I trust and I will ask some questions, and I'll do my own research and look at things that I hear uh, throughout the Christian world. Now, we want to spend this afternoon on hold fast what is good. I have to tell you that you might, I might have to come back and finish this one. Maybe next year would be good. But anyway, hold fast to what is good. What does that mean? Hold fast. You know, uh, when you're kids, holding fast means holding the neck of your brother. That's not what we're talking about. Don't let go, you know. He's turning purple. Don't do that. Don't do that. Holding fast here, according to BDAG, all right? According to BDAG means to adhere firmly to something like traditions or instructions, values, convictions, holding with a grip that won't let go is the idea. But I really like Wiest, Kenneth Wiest. He says this. He says, it's used in the nautical world. And it makes, makes a bit of a sense. All these areas were near the, near the shore. And, and the idea is that as you would navigate the vessel into port, you had to hold the, the wheel of the vessel quite firm let for being off even just a few slight degrees could run the vessel into the shallow waters, into the, uh, make it a, 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 a shipwreck. And he's saying you have to be very careful when you're navigating into port, when you're navigating through those narrow passageways so that you don't run aground. You hold it tight. It was really funny. I was in the, or we were in the Bahamas, and, and Spanish Wells is, is a small island about half a mile by a mile long, and it's right next to another island called Russell Island. And uh, Russell Island's a little bit bigger. And there's this narrow channel. And while we were down there one day, I was, uh, I was out with the kids, and we were in their golf cart, and we were driving around the community in a golf cart. It, you know those things can go fast. Anyway, we're, we're tooling down the, the road right next to the docks, and we look over to the right, and there's this magnificent yacht. I mean, it was decked out. It had multiple levels. It had things I didn't even know yachts were supposed to have. And we looked at it, and we're going, Wow. And it said it's leaning to the left. And they had gone aground, right? It was really funny because all those men on that island, all the women too, they, they all know about, about uh, sailing. And I go in to talk to Rupert. I said, hey, Rupert, did you see that yacht out there? And he goes, dumb Americans. <laughs> they should have hired somebody, right? 
right? It's a pretty embarrassing, if not destructing thing, thing to run aground. And yet what Weist is saying is that what you have to do is you have to hold tightly the navigational wheel so that you can actually make it through the narrow passageways that God or that is allowed to come your, on your path. That's the idea of holding fast. Steady as she goes. Don't lose grip and don't flinch left or right. It has a sense of stability associated with it. So, when he says, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, hold fast to what is good, the natural question is, well, what are we holding steady to? What are we gripping so that we're not off a degree or two? You do understand the image of that, right? It's, it's this idea that right now, if you're off just a half a degree, you really can't tell. But what happens is as you go through time, what happens is, As time goes by, that little half a degree today turns out to be a large deviation later on. It gets bigger and bigger, right? And that's the whole physics idea of the angle. Now, what he's saying is is that there are certain things that if you are, are faulty on now, you don't hold fast to, downs two, three, four generations, you'll find yourself well deviated. This is the challenge of every generation. A lot of generations that come along like to say, well, we want to change things. We need to speak to our culture. We need to speak to our people. We need to say it in a way that we can understand it. And all that may have some utility. You can change the wrapping paper, the color of the ribbon, but never change what's in the box. That's what's key. And there's a fine line between the two. So when we talk about holding fast, I've, I've selected a few things uh, that we might speak of. Oh, it says hold fast what is good. I meant to mention holding fast what is good. That which is blameless. That which has an excellent quality to it. These are the things of God. Uh, Zodahadis, he's another um, a person who's produced quite a nice uh, lexicon. He said things that are constitutionally wholesome, expressing beauty, not just good in quality, but good to the eye, harmonious producing a sense of, of, um, of, of getting along, unity, completeness, balance, proportion, appropriate uh, uh, weight on one issue versus the other. Good in character. There's a, a, a character of integrity, a character of honesty. Uh, uh, these are the excellent things. You hold fast to these good things. And so when we look at items in the assembly, when we look at items of our life and how to make decisions... There are certain types of of processes you should go through. And one of those processes is using this principle of looking for that which is of an excellent quality to it. Let me just give you, just as an aside, a a little bit of a tiny grid when you evaluate decisions that you have to make. In the scriptures, there are things which, which God says are his absolute commands. He says, do not steal. Anybody have a hermeneutical issue with that? No, it says do not steal. That means don't steal, all right? So that's a direct command. Usually in the command or the imperative mode in the, in the New Testament, and it's, it's just so blatant out right in front of you. The book of 2 Timothy has approximately 26 commands, which is one every two and a half verses. Paul had a lot to say in his final letter. Now, then, then if, we don't look, if we look in the Scriptures and we don't find a direct command that is pertinent to our decision tree, then what you do is you look for God's principles. 
All right, so these are things that God uses as sort of a universal um, guidance, guideposts or concepts, and that they, they become uh, applicable to multiple situations, and you see if it's applicable to your situation. Let me give you one of these. Avoid the appearance of evil. That's a principle. Right? It can be applied to a lot of situations. And when we are making such decisions, we, we say, well, Lord, you didn't say uh, anything in the Scripture about riding alone in a car with, with a, a, a girl. Uh, should I or should I not? I didn't even know cars were in the Bible. Maybe the accord, I guess. But anyway, uh, did you get that one? Did you get that? Okay. I know, one accord. But he said, avoid the appearance of evil. So maybe I should do this in a way that allows no evil to be observed, right? Did you know Billy Graham did that? The late Billy Graham, honored by our country, was a man who would never ride in the car alone with another woman unless it was his wife. I was, I was, I was so impressed by that. Avoid the appearance of evil. I first saw this as a young man back at Turkey Hill Ranch Bible Camp. The then director, Steve Allen, said to me one day, Steve, talking to me, would you like to come in with me to town while we take so-and-so to the doctor that was injured? I go, yeah, sure, what for? Why don't you just do it? He goes, well, because. You know, I want to avoid the appearance of evil, that if somebody sees me doing that, they wouldn't have the wrong conclusion about the gospel because of an improper-like situation. Tremendous! There's nothing in the Bible about Turkey Hill Ranch taking a camper to see the doctor. But there is a principle about avoiding the appearance of evil. And what's the third thing? The third thing is God's character. God's character. may not have a principle, but God does things a certain way. For example, God is generous. God is very generous. Now, the one who taught me this idea was my wife, actually. <laughs> and it, happens on, it happened on date night. Because, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I would want to tip the server, but not that much. And she would say to me, you know, God's generous. I go, really? <laughs> and then she'd play this card. It always killed me. I hate, I hate to think that this person would not read this gospel track I'm going to leave because we left a lousy tip. Oh, man, how do you get out of that? You can't get out of that. You guys need to marry a woman like that, let me tell you. Oh, my goodness. God is generous, you know. See, and, and that shapes us. And so what we do is we think, well, how would God do this? You, young man, you guys, we do this about our dad. You, your dad's not there, and, and you're supposed to make a decision on his behalf, and you go, well, well, what, would God, what would my dad do? And, and you think, well, he would do it this way because I've, I've seen his character. He's a merciful guy. This is what he'd do, so we'll do that. You operate according to his character. That's the other thing. This is some holding to what is good. It's a really brilliant thing. And the last trump card of all trump cards is this one. Do what would glorify the Lord Jesus the most. When in doubt... What glorifies Christ or the Father the most? Not just a little bit, the most. You see that? That's an idea of what it means to hold fast to what is good. And I've given you an illustration in the, in the realm of decision-making uh, in, the life of, in, in the Christian life. Now, I've selected a few things that I thought we ought to specifically focus on. And one is biblical traditions. 
biblical. I didn't say traditions alone. I said biblical traditions. Did you know we have biblical traditions? Oh, I don't know, Steve. Biblical traditions, where is that in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. Uh, turn just over to the second book of Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. Read this with me. Therefore, brethren, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, actually, actually the same idea of holding fast, stand fast and hold the traditions. Paul, what are you, crazy? Traditions that you were taught. What did he teach them? What, you, what, what kind of traditions do we have that are biblical traditions? Biblical traditions. Well, I would tell you uh, that uh, the Word of God is a priority. It's a biblical tradition, uh, whether by word or our epistle. I would tell you that holding high uh, regard, a high view of Scripture is a biblical tradition. How about, uh, how about this idea of 1 Corinthians eleven six? Now, let's turn over to that one. That one always causes a bit of stir. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse six, or 16, excuse me, I wrote 6, it should be 16. Did I say 2 Corinthians? I meant 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. 16. Thank you for that correction. Now, you realize the context is, is, uh, uh, is talking about headship and order, and in this discussion, uh, the head covering will come up. You know, I, I, I'm not sure I, I truly understand the resistance to this concept. The concept is pictorial, it's representative, it's, it's reflective of something bigger than you. Like baptism is reflective of something bigger than you. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, water, under, up, underneath, now out of the water. I mean, that's so, such a simplistic demonstration, but it is a divinely authorized, sanctioned uh, demonstration. That's the difference. It's a biblical tradition. Head covering has the same idea. Head covering is this idea that the Lord Jesus, who was equal with God, voluntarily took a place underneath God. We call that willing submission under the Father's loving authority. And what happens when he did that is he, taking the lower place like Abraham did with Lot, when he took the lower place, what happens is that he put himself in a mentality and a state of mind. He took the disposition that was necessary for a person to go to the cross. See, no one volunteers to go to the cross. You have to divest yourself of loving authority and take the place of the willing servant. That's how the cross is done. That's how it's done in Philippians chapter 2. So this dynamic of, of voluntarily taking the place of willing submission is, is so embedded, so woven into the heart of God, that's exactly how your sin was paid for. If Christ didn't have willing submission, how would your sin pay, be paid for? It can't be paid for. It has to be by that attitude, by that paradigm. And so what he does is he says, now listen, I, I have a way I want this to be expressed. And it's simple. I, I just want you to cover your head. That's my divine way. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. You, we have artists today that we love their work. Like, I love Thomas Kincaid. You ever see his stuff? It's brilliant. 
It's absolutely brilliant. You know, the painter of lights. But you, you know, I, I pay big bucks to put a copy of it in my home. A copy! Not the original. A little dinky copy about this big. Right? And I'm very proud of it. I say, hey, Jake, come over to my house. You see my original copy of Thomas Kincaid? And you look at me like, you're dumber than a brick. Right? It's a copy. Right? The point is, is that God is saying the original version was at the cross. And I am, I am signing off as the author on the appropriate original copy. And I'd like you to display it in the crevices and the doorways and the hallways of the temple of God where you live and dwell. Would you do that for me? And thus it becomes what we would call a biblical tradition. Now that's not the only teaching on the head covering, but I'm using it as an example. And so Paul comes to the end of this paragraph and he says in verse 16, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such, we have no such custom nor do the churches of God. Now, there are three possibilities here. The first one is Paul is saying, and by the way, everything I just said, we don't really practice. That would be, uh, how should we say, hermeneutical suicide. It doesn't work. You don't spend 15 verses talking about a concept and say, but we don't do that anyway. Who talks like that? Maybe me. <laughs> All right? So what's the other option? The other option is that he says, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. In other words, we don't really argue about this. And the third one is this, we have, we have no such contention, or, or we, anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, meaning that there is no other practice done except the practice of, in this case, the head covering. My point is not about the head covering. My point is that there is a biblical precedent for a biblical tradition that has biblical basis and therefore is sanctioned by God himself. We do that with the Lord's table, the, the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, don't we? And we wouldn't think twice about uh, 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 altering that, that or we would, we would think twice about altering that. We would think twice about changing that. It's a biblical tradition. Ask yourself, why do we just have a cup and why do we just have a, a, a loaf? Why that? Why don't we have, you know, maybe some fruit, maybe we have some vegetables. I don't know, some, some vegans around here might want something, I don't know. Just kidding, Chris, I'm just kidding. But why do we do that? Because it says in the scriptures that what we, we, you have places to eat and drink at home. The whole idea of coming together is to remember the Lord Jesus. And the implication is we keep it simple so that all of our focus is not on the ornateness and the overwhelming presentation, but on the simplicity of Jesus Christ. It's a biblical tradition. And that's the stuff you hold fast to. So when, when we come to the generation that's before us, your generation, my generation, we look at it, there are appropriate biblical traditions that we don't alter. And I don't think we need to be sheepish about that. We don't need to say things like, oh, well, you know, we're kind of weird. We, you know, we, don't, we have a meeting, and they're just a cup, and there's just a little bread. And you see, we're all kind of quiet for a while, and then somebody stands. That's just a, we're just kind of odd, but you'll like it. Is that what you do? I tell you, I don't do that. I do it like this. We have a time where the Lord Jesus comes and he makes a point to be in our presence. And we have a presiding over the meeting, the best pastor in the universe, the Lord Jesus. And then we have the best worship leader who's just like the pastor, the Holy Spirit. And he is phenomenal. And I tell you, I'm tired of us apologizing for traditions that are biblically based. 
And we don't change those. We don't get rid of those. We don't alter those. We don't mess with the fingerprint of God. And I challenge you to keep it straight. There are there things that you can't change? Sure. Absolutely. There are things that are changeable based on the time, based on the culture, based on the audience, of course. But the ones that are biblical, don't mess with them. They're absolutes. Okay, let's move on. I'd like you to hold fast to things mentally, in your mind, in your heart. Now, the book of Philippians, Paul gives this to us in this way. He says, Philippians 4.8, I'll, I'll turn to it and read it. Philippians chapter 4, and um, let's, let's begin reading for the sake of context uh, in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. <laughs> that always, that always, I always thought that was kind of a humorous way to say something. Oh, you can be anxious just for nothing. Oh, okay, that covers a lot. Yeah, I can enjoy my anxiety in that box. Be anxious for nothing. <laughs> it's kind of clever, I think. Anyway, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, the idea of prayer and supplication is both general petition and specific petition. And then he says, with thanksgiving. Remember what thanksgiving does. It's an acknowledgement. It's a confession that God's rightful rule and, and decision-making is superior to yours. That comes from Isaiah 55. It says, my ways are not your, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. You acknowledge that and you bow to that and surrender to that kind of thinking. And thanksgiving is the ultimate expression of such a submissive soul. And so when you bring your petitions, both general and specific, to God, you're coming with a heart that's already submitted to God himself. And therefore, thanksgiving is not a forced deal, not a hand-behind-my-back deal, but a natural outflow of the heart deal. And so he says this. He says, be anxious for absolutely zero, but i tell you what you do. In replace of that anxiety, you bring your aches and your pains to the heart of, the thro- uh, heart of God, who with that spirit that submits to his authority expressed in thankfulness, let your request be made known to God. It, says, it doesn't say let your request be, known, be made known to someone else or to an organization or to the Internet. You let your request be made known to God. Now, if God wants everybody else to know, that's his business. But you let him first be made known to God. And then it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, the problem is, is that when you're anxious, you have no peace. And so what he says is the way to get rid of anxiety is is that you actually take these things and you pour them out to the Lord. And what happens in the Christian life is they pour their hearts out to the Lord. The Lord grants them with the right thanksgiving. The Lord grants them a measure of peace. And then the enemy comes along and reminds them again about everything else that needs to be done. And all the anxiety floods back into the soul. And what do you do at that point? You go back to praying and making your supplications and requests known unto God. And you give him that heart attitude that submits in thanksgiving. And he gives you more peace. It's not a one and done. It's a repetition. It's a beautiful thing here. And he says, that will keep you, that will keep you from going insane, if I may. We'll guard your hearts and minds mentally. Now, there's an additional factor here. You've got to think a certain way. 
And that's what he brings up in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever, whatever things are true, that means um, things that have an honest, uh, uh, wholesome quality to it, integrity, things that are noble, uh, things that have a sense of, um, uh, uh, of, of uprightness, of, of, of royalty to it, uh, things that are just, things that have that sense of, of right wiseness to it, things that are lovely, appealing, uh, I think, to the, to the thoughts, to the mind, things that are of good report, a great reputation, things that are virtuous, have, a, have that, again, excellent quality, have an excellent ability to be praised by others. In other words, you're thinking, you're saturating yourself, your mind, with that which would, would be speak of the character of God. All these things are the character of God. True, noble, just, lovely, good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy. Those are things about God himself. Those are things about Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying to us is, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to take in your mind and processing it through those things which are of the character of Christ himself. Why do you read the Bible? Well, I read the Bible because I'm doing a Bible read-through this year and I want to be able to say I did it. Okay, I'm glad for you. That's not why I read the Bible. I read the Bible to know him to know his truth, to know his nobility, to know his justice, to know his loveliness, to know his good report, uh, to, to find that which is praiseworthy, to see his, virtu his virtuousness. I read the Bible to know my king. And I write it down, and I try to memorize it, and I try to know it, and, I, and, and everywhere, notes, lines, things everywhere in my study file. And I want to know the Lord. You see, when we have this occupation with Christ... It changes you. Hold fast to that. You ever meet a newlywed couple? There's one in this room, actually. Where are you? There you are. He's so cute. Aren't they cute? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, they, they, they live about 10 minutes from... Yeah, I'm talking about Nick and Maggie. Right? They live about 10 minutes from us. And uh, they're very, very attentive to each other, right? Hey, Maggie, you want to stay for dinner? Well, um, you know, Nick, he's going to get home, and he's going to be hungry, and I just want to make sure I have something for him. Okay. I'm just your dad. Everything's filtered through Nick, and same way Nick to Maggie, right? Well, hey, let, me let me talk to Maggie first before I come over and pray with you. Nick, we're going to pray. I, I, I know, I, I just, right? Everything's filtered through the other person, right? This is what we do with the Lord Jesus. Hey, Josh, you want to come over? Well, let me ask the Lord, right? That's the idea. Hey, you, 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 you want to you take off and, and, and run over to that area? Yeah, yeah but... You know, I promised the Lord that I was going to be with him this afternoon. And so I, let me ask him first. See, we don't treat the Lord like we would do a newlywed relationship when that freshness of, of being with each other is so, is so strong. We don't treat the Lord that way. We treat him like, hey, Lord, I'm going to go over here. Hope you don't mind. See you later. That's how we do it. Now, none of you would say that to me publicly or privately, but you and I both know that's exactly how it goes down. So when it says, hold fast to what is good, 
I am suggesting to you that you hold fast to the character of the Lord Jesus, clinging to Him, that everything is filtered through Him, by Him, and for Him, for that's exactly what the New Testament says, and that we are astutely aware of His desires, of His, of his wants, of His dislikes, and everything else is therefore governed by that analysis. In other words, there's no self. There's no self. Mentally, hold fast to what is good. Lastly, I want to talk about, or second to last, I want to talk about morally. It has been stated that in our society today, we have an overemphasis upon immorality. Sexual promiscuity, gratification of our senses. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that totally. If you read Corinthian history, they appeared to have something similar to ours, maybe even worse, I don't know. But is it really, in, is it really that important to figure out which culture was worse? I'd say we're all bad. And the same teaching that was in that Greco-Roman culture, which is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just a chapter before, uh, is the same instruction given them, is the same instruction for us today. So holding fast to things which, is, which are moral is for us today. Now I want you to know something. Holding fast to, mora- to the right morality is a fight. It's not like, it's not like we just, you know, hang on to the corner of the tablecloth of morality and we walk through life. You fight for it, okay? The flesh is a beast and the beast loves to be fed. You fight for it. It's called a good fight because it is a good fight. Turn over. Look at at 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to read some of this to you because it's important. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that meeting's supposed to end at 2.30. It's not. So I'm just, I'm just saying that right now, right now, and you just, just, like, just get used to it, okay? All right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not really teasing, but I'll try to be good. All right, chapter 4, and I want, you to, I want to read this with you. Finally then, brethren, verse 1, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, all right? So he's saying, we want you to live in such a manner that you would have an overabundance, a, a leftover of something. And what is that? Well, of walking in how to, pleasing, and how to please God. Skip down to the next paragraph, verse 3. For this is the will of God. Anybody have any problems with understanding what the will of God is? It's exactly what follows. There is no dispute about the will of God on this one. Your sanctification, what does that mean? That means your separation, your removal over, uh, from one thing to be devoted to another. That's what sanctification is. It's the same word as saint. It's the same word as, as uh, holy. And here's the idea, that you should abstain, in this particular illustration, this particular point, from sexual immorality. Is there any problem understanding the hermeneutics of what he's saying? I'll put it to you this way. Don't use your bodies to sin. That's all he's saying. That's the will of God. That each of you know how. There's a process of understanding how to go about possessing your your vessel, your body in sanctification and being separated unto honorable purposes. 
Now, for me personally, it's probably different for every person, but for me personally, I have to be saturated with God's Word. The moment I fail in one 24-hour period to be drinking as full as I can from God's Word is the moment I am tempted. And it's not just a little temptation. It's huge. And the moment in which I have that happening, I find that my prayer life immediately shrivels up and I don't call upon the Lord. And what I find personally of knowing how to possess my vessel in sanctification and honor is first I continuously saturate myself with the Word of God and I'm continuously communicating with the Lord throughout the day. And so then if you were to sit in the recesses of my heart and soul, you would hear me talk to the Lord. No, I don't speak out loud. I don't go into the bathroom and have a conversation to the mirror. It's nothing like that. But what I do is I'm having continuous conversation with the Lord. I'll ask His opinion. I'll thank Him. I'll sing to Him. I'll, I'll rejoice in Him. I'll just, you know, my little girl Gracie will come up spontaneously out of the blue. She's running down the house doing Gracie things. And she'll stop in mid-tracks. And she'll come over and give me the biggest hug ever known to mankind and whisper in my ear. And she'll say, Daddy, I love you. And gone again. Well, let me tell you, that about melts me in that spot. And I'd do anything for that little girl. Right? Well, if that would do if that would happen to me as an earthly father, how much more do you think that would mean to your heavenly father? And my days, my moments, I look to fill them with that kind of interaction and relationship with my father in heaven. And as we're walking in the spirit in this capacity, I suddenly am encountered a temptation. And, it, and it's nothing that you produce. The enemy loves to send those things right across your path. Maybe it's a billboard. Maybe it's some kind of, of, of uh, 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 a magazine cover that's on the doctor's desk or, or end table. And you're going, <gasps> and what do you do? You do a couple of things. You get up and physically remove yourself. Make no provision for the flesh. You turn it over. You hand it over to the receptionist. I think somebody spilled something on this. Right? You go over and you get away from it. Number two, the thought still lingers in your mind. What do you do? I actually then say, Lord, that thought is reigning in my head. That image is clear as, I, as if it was still in front of me, and I cannot take it away. My flesh loves it. Now listen close. I say this thing. I say, Lord, I, deny, I declare the flesh dead because the flesh was already dead a long time ago when you died on the cross for my sins. Lord, I want to reckon it so, and I ask you to then remove its influence upon me. And then the third thing I say is this, and I renounce any loyalty I have to the flesh for that flesh wants me to be loyal to its dead state again. I disavow myself from this flesh. Take it away, O oh God. You know what the next thing I do? I pray for many people. A lot of those people are in this room. And I pray for your moral holding fast. I pray that you would stand strong in temptation. And the funny thing, the enemy doesn't like to hang out when all of his temptation does is produces more prayer. Right? That's me. Now, you, you, you might do it differently. I don't know. But that's an example of knowing how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Am, am I 100% successful? No. No. But it's not because God failed. It's because I chose to sin. And when you choose to sin, you rush to the Word of God. 
And the same process of, of confession and repentance and recognizing that it was grievous to the heart of God, that tears were shed perhaps in heaven, and that you then disavow and renounce my loyalty of which I took my sin and put it on the throne. Now I remove that in myself and I submit myself afresh to you. All that's in the book of James chapter 4. It's in the book of 1 John chapter 1. And you get reset in terms of your, your, your spiritual buttons. And you go fresh. That's fighting the good fight in as detailed fashion as I can give you. Knowing how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Do you know how that should happen? Are you practicing that? I've given you my own personal story. I've given you how I battle the flesh on a daily basis. And it's not just in the lust of the eyes. It's when we want to be angry. Usually when we want to be angry, we're angry because we, we got embarrassed or because we didn't want to admit we were wrong or that my reaction was over the top and I needed to repent of it. I needed to apologize it, but I don't. I want to keep justifying myself and I can see it and feel it and all that sort of tension in me and I'm trying to justify myself and, and prove that I was right and that I was okay to do what I did and I wasn't. And I do that same process. Know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Hold fast morally. In this particular passage, I'll just finish reading it. It says this. How to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, being controlled by the passion of lust is equivalent to a state of a not knowing God. But you do know God, believer. You do know God, don't you? And therefore, he says, because you know God, there is a different way to go about business that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this manner. Do you know what that means? That means that you do not continue to lust after a, 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 a believer in Jesus Christ. God takes that seriously, and it even says in the next phrase that he is the avenger, avenger of such. He takes that very seriously, but many of us in this room would not lust after the Christian. We'd lust after the unsaved, right? <laughs> I was listening to Joe Reese once. You know, I could listen to him all day. He's, a, he's that kind of speaker. It's probably that Canadian-Alabama accent. I don't know. Is that a thing? He was talking about this topic. I heard him speak. He was dressing, addressing men, and he goes like this. If you find yourself... And I can't mimic his southern drawl. I'll try. If you find yourself <laughs> turning off the TV when your wife walks in the room, then he leans into us. You got a problem. But it wasn't a, no one said anything, including me. Kept my mouth shut. Do you have a problem? Holding fast to that which is moral? I want you to know that when you trusted Christ as Savior, you trusted in the God who specializes and breaking the chains of canceled sin. All right. This uh, last point here, holding fast to that which is ethical, is only really a prelude into the uh, closing illustration. Ethically here is, and I won't turn to this because our time is quickly gone and I, I need to get to the closing illustration. 1 Corinthians 15.8 speaks of, of steadfast, 
firmly established. That means that you're, you're like a, a, a pole and you're put in concrete in the ground and, you, and, and the foundation is locked in, all right? And then the next thing it says, immovable. And that means the part that's sticking out of the ground doesn't break off. That, that the, the part in the ground is safe and secure and the part above the ground will not be bent or broken in two by the gales of the storm. Now I say this too because it leads into this illustration from Joseph's life. I really enjoyed Joe. Joe had such an interesting life, I, I marvel at it. Of course, there's a found fantastic book over there written by, you guessed it, Bill McDonald, and he writes, I think the title is uh, Joseph. He sure reminds me of Christ, right? I, that's something like the title. It's a, it's a nice little read, I might add. But Joseph demonstrates a couple of other things, and one of the things he dem demonstrates is holding fast. Now, if you could bear with me, the storytelling element will end, will end quickly. But it's very, very important for you. It's a, Joseph, of course, was envied and hated by his brothers. They hated him so much they wanted him dead. And they're very cold and heartless, you know. When they, they saw Joseph coming across the field. Now, I've got to admit, I don't know if Joseph was too bright because he always told them about his dreams. But when you're young and, and dumb, you, you kind of are just trying to figure it out. Hey, I had, Dad, I had this dream, and you were there, and I'm there, and you were like this. And, and Dad goes, you ought not to say that. We're not going to do that. You know, of course it happened. He told his brothers, and he, he underestimated that the brothers had the brotherly love thing going on, meaning, don't you ever pipsqueak tell me that I'm going to bow to you. Do you know how much of a little runt you are? You don't get it, do you? That's kind of all in that path. Anybody have families like that? Anyway, and so he was hated, and, and, and they're so ruthless. When, when they finally got a hold of him and threw him into the pit, they were keeping him in the pit originally to figure out how to murder him. And what did they do after they threw him in the pit? They sat down and had lunch. That's heartless, man. That's heartless. Hey, I'm hungry. Let's eat. And he's screaming in the pit. Hey, let me out. Don't do this. You want to pass the salt? I'm hungry. Can you believe that? That's terrible. Anyway, Joseph had a particular rough beginning. It was only because of the passing by caravan that he actually lived. And they said, hey, there's that caravan. The Midianites are going that way. Let's sell him. We'll act like he's not our brother, like a slave, and we just want to get rid of him. And he's, 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 it appears later on in, in text that he's calling out, don't do this in Hebrew, don't do this, don't sell me, I'm your brother. Of course, the Midianites, they might not understand Hebrew, and they just sold him away, think he was a lying slave, trying to be a renegade slave. And there he is, miles down the road, yelling and screaming, crying out, tears, the whole thing. Heartless brothers! I'll tell you, if there's anything that could make you bitter, that would make you bitter, wouldn't it? That would, that would frost your nose and... And turn up your ears. Boy, that's bad stuff. And you would be so upset, angry. And you'd not only be angry at your brothers, you'd be angry at God. Why did you let this happen to me? Is this what sovereignty is about? Is this what om omnipotence is about? Letting me be treated like this? That's what you would be tempted to think. And many Christians have thought those things about God. Don't believe me. This is the reality of, of, of the Christian life. So what happens is he goes down to Egypt, and, and you guessed it, he's sold as a slave. Do you know what that means? That generally means he was probably stripped naked on an auction block so everybody could gawk and see his physical specimen and his, his muscles so they would know if he would be a stout, survivable human being for the slave market. 
That's what it means. Every shred of dignity was removed from this boy. And so what happens is he's sold and he's picked up, excuse me, he's picked up by the executioner, the chief executioner for Pharaoh. Don't spill the milk in that family. Now, finger won't come off, your head will come off, right? What a, what a terrible place to be. And then on top of that, he, he, the, he seems to have been blessed. And, and perhaps God was showing him how he was still sovereign over even things that looked so terrible. And, and, and he's, he's rising up in the home and he's taking on more responsibility. And all of a sudden, Mrs. Potiphar goes, hey, how you doing? You're a very young guy. You're looking fine. Are those muscles real? Is that a six-pack or a 12-pack on your tummy? You know? She's coming after him. She's, she's, she's wanting him. Think about it. He had, he had oh, look at all that terrible beginning. He had all that terrible things happen to him. And, and, and you know, you'd be tempted to just, just forget God. And in the moment in which she grasps him and, 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 and propositions him, he says, and this is in Genesis 39.9, he says this, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against Elohim? He's saying, I can't do this. Joseph, you're a, of all the people, you, you probably, it's not justifiable, but I could understand if you forgot. God, look at all that you've been through. He held fast to his integrity and trusting the heart of God. And in the moment when pleasure was right at his fingertips, when he had it in his hand and no one would know and no one would care, he's alone in a foreign country. He holds on to God. Oh, don't we need, that? Don't we need to be that kind of people? Well, what happens there is after he does the right thing, she goes, ah, oh no, he refused me. Oh my. And so what happens is she holds his clothes because he ran away. I mean, she, you think about this, how much she was trying to get after him, that, that she would grab his clothes and pull him off. He runs away as it appears naked. And she goes, oh, my, I've been refused, Mrs. Beautiful Potiphar. And she waits for her husband to get home, and she holds that piece of clothes. Look at what you've done to me. This lion, 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 lion. You, you brought in this Hebrew to take advantage of me. <laughs> and, she, and, and, and the next thing you know, uh, she tells Potiphar that this guy is a bad guy, and he needs, to, he needs to be out of the house. And if you're chief executioner, you'd put him to death. I don't think he believed Mrs. Potiphar because he throws him in jail. And he's in jail, and now what, what happens is he's at the bottom of the food chain again. Just when things were getting better. You think that would make you upset with God? You think that would call, make you want to call God out a little bit? Yes, that's what Christians do, and I want you to know that you need to hold fast to Elohim. So what happens? Well, God shows himself faithful. He allows Joseph to progress well in the community of the prison. And next thing you know, he's in charge of the prisoners. He's obviously showing some great leadership skills. His inmates have some dreams. And, and one of them talks about his dream. And the other one talks about his dream. And he says, he says this. Are you ready? Do not interpretations belong to Elohim, to God? Now, those guys probably thought he was talking about Pharaoh. But Joseph was talking about Jehovah. He had another moment where he could have been upset and refused to cling to the integrity of God's heart, but he chose to hold fast to God. 
And so he interprets their dreams, and you know the story. Uh, uh, the one is executed, the other was brought back into Pharaoh's good, good favor. And he says, now, just before he, the, the one fellow left, he says, now, don't forget me before Pharaoh. And it says in the text, two years later, over 730 days later, I'm sure he's marking them off on the wall. Joseph is finally remembered. Boy, I tell you, wouldn't that make you upset? Been in here, what, 10 years? Can't believe it. And then one day, Pharaoh has this dream. You know the story. Pharaoh has this dream, and, and, and he can't interpret it. And finally, uh, uh, the, the, uh, I think it was the butler, he says to, the, to Pharaoh. I, I imagine it went down like this. Hey, boss, you know, when I was in the joint, I knew a guy. This guy could tell me dreams and interpret them. You had a dream. Maybe he could help you with your dream. The boss says, Pharaoh, well, what are you standing around for? Go get him. And so they rush in there, and I can, I can see the, the, all the uh, uh, guards of Pharaoh's army clang, 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 clang down there in perfect stride and, and unison, and, and they rush over to the, unlock the door, open it up. Joseph's in there. He looks like he's been sleeping under a rock, and he goes, yeah? We need to clean you up. Have you shaved lately? Uh, No. So they clean him all up, they get him dressed, they put a little perfume on him, take him before the Pharaoh. He's now before Pharaoh, and, and, uh, and, and Pharaoh says, I hear that you know how to interpret dreams. And what does Joseph say? This is the best moment when Joseph could have said, yes, it's me, baby, bring it on. You know what he says? He says, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Elohim. He's not talking about Pharaoh being God. Now, he's talking about somebody bigger than Pharaoh who would, give the, who would give the interpretation. He never let go. He held fast to the integrity of who God is. His brothers come in, and they, you know, after the dreams are, are, dreams are interpreted, and, and, and Joseph is elevated to prime minister. Eventually, all the world comes to get food there. His brothers come in, and, and, and he has the upper hand over the guys that hated him. And he could have he just squeezed the life out of him. And what, he, what does he do? He says this. He says, do this and live for I fear Elohim. We're talking now 10, 20 years down the road and he is hanging on, holding fast to God. Oh my goodness. Joseph tells his brothers in amazement when he finally reveals himself, he says, now listen, don't be angry with yourselves. You meant evil, but look at this, but God meant it for good, he sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Do you see this man? 20 years later, he's holding on to God. He doesn't have the Bible. He has faith in God that God is doing the right thing, even though it felt like always the wrong thing. And I tell you, it ends in a beautiful way. The family moves over to, uh, to Egypt. They get settled. Eventually, uh, eventually, um, uh, uh, Jacob dies, or Israel dies, and, and his brothers. And this is in Genesis chapter 50, and this is what I want you to turn to. Genesis chapter 50, and verse 24. After dad dies, his brothers are worried about retaliation. And they sheepishly approach their younger sibling. Look at what it says. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I said verse 24. I, I wanted to back you up in verse 15. 
So when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before dad died, he commanded saying that you shall not, that you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did you evil to you. You know what they're saying? They're very, they're very coy. They said, dad told us to tell you this. That he, he's, he, dad asked you to forgive your other brothers. Basically, they were saying that. And Joseph, I think, saw through that. And they said, now please forgive the trespass of your servants and the, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. Why did he weep? Because he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that they actually would think he would hurt them. He said, I can't do that. Now notice this. This is key. This is key. He says, his brothers who went fell down before him, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. That's just like the dream. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. I know you're scared, but I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to take you out. I'm not going to make you suffer. Notice this. As for you, oh, he says, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of Elohim? He held fast to God, but as for you, you meant it for evil. I love this about Joseph. He didn't deny the fact that somebody had an ill heart and wanted him dead and murdered. He said, you did mean it for evil, but, look at this, read it with me, but God meant it for good. You know what he's saying? Out of all that evil and all that ransacking of chaos and, and hatred that you had for me, you, you, we, you thought that was going to win the day, but God had good in mind, and the good, he, over, he overshadowed your evil. And look at all the good. And he said, and look at all the people that's been saved, your families, your children, my nieces, my nephews, your grandchildren. Look at this fantastic thing God has done, and I am going with that version of good. Not the version of good that would require, that would include vengeance and revenge. I'm letting it go because God overwhelmed this. Yes, there was evil on the table. Yes, there was wrong. Yes, and if there's one thing I learned in all of my life, that the goodness of God always prevails, whether it be with you brothers, whether it be with Potiphar or Mrs. Potiphar or in the dungeon, it always, the goodness of God always prevails, and I'm going to let the goodness of God be my interpretation of all things natural. Saints, we have so many things that happen to us. And they're painful. And they're hard. Assembly trials, wayward believers, spouses that have left, children that have gone. We, we've had so many things. We've had deaths. We've had illnesses. We've had accidents. We've had un, uh, uh, un, uh, un, uh, unable to understand circumstances and yet, the thing that you must hold on to, the thing that you must cling to, hold fast to what is good, you hold on to the version of good that God is doing. And you let that shape your attitudes, and you let that shape your life, you let that shape your disposition, and you could say in the face of those who hated you a day ago, a day ago that you can say, and the things that God has done so good, they overshadow, they remove, they erase what you've done. And I'm going to just believe and know that because that's the truth. Hold fast to what is good. Let's pray. Our Father, this has been a, a long afternoon for the saints. and Father, I'm sure they're tired. Their minds are weak. Their hearts are full and overwhelmed. 
Father, would you, would you take your spirit today and revisit your truth in their souls? Would you just take it and, 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 and re, repaint the walls of their heart so that they would think and live and understand as Christ did? He was under such subjugated, under such suffering and painful uh, uh, moments on the cross, for, for example, and yet God meant it for good. His Father meant it for good, and that's what prevailed. Oh, help us to follow this theme. It's the dominant theme of the rest of the Bible, isn't it, Father? And it needs to be the dominant, prevalent, only theme of the rest of our days So all the things that have happened, splits, painful moments of tension, divorces, we ask you to overshadow everything, every every moment of of these evil actions and attitudes. Let your goodness so pervade that it washes it all away. That's what was done at the cross when my sin being so evil was washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Please, we want to relieve, relive that theme today. We want to be living testimonies of the grand heart of God. This is what you've done at the cross. This is what you've done for mankind. And this is what you'll do every day of our lives. And we want to sing that chorus together. Oh God, would you do that to these saints today in Jesus' name? Amen.